Hi, everybody, and welcome. What a great year we had. 2023, 52 weeks and 52 Tellage Talks podcast episodes. Of course, what has been the best part is the inspiring people that I have met throughout the course of doing this podcast. Nearly 50 years as a television sports journalist, I've certainly had the occasion to talk to all of the greats, from Michael Jordan to LeBron James numerous times, starting when he was just a teenager and then all the way through his career, to Ali, to Simone Biles, to Bernie Kosar, you name it. But there are so many inspiring people, not just in sports, but in all walks of life. And that is what Tellich Talks is all about. So in this episode, we're gonna look inside at some of the best interviews and folks that I had the occasion to chat with this past year. Let's begin with Corwin Collier who almost died in May of 2009 while serving in Iraq with the United States Army. Maple Heights teacher and coach, he was badly injured when a bomb exploded mangling his leg and his right hand. There were some very, very dark moments while in recovery at Walter Reed Medical Center in the DC area. But the Army veteran came through his episode airing on January the 6th. Here's Corwin Collier. It was hard because, um, like you said, I I was so used to being active. I was so used like to, to, to always working out, running and training and things like that. And I still had, I, I really wanted to try to make it to like the USA Championship. So when sure. I was in Iraq, I was actually still training to try to come back and actually have a track career um still because i still felt in the back of my mind that i was still capable of doing it 100 percent, sure and so um so the nightmares the the depression the suicide thoughts and all that stuff used to run through my head on a daily basis and it took a long time for me to kind of be able to thrive and fight through that kind of stuff what helped you honestly it was my dad being there oh my dad used to come and um to dc and be with me Uh, my wife being there it took uh, took a couple months. I didn't want my sons to, to come at first because I didn't want them to see me the way sure. I was. So I wanted to wait till like after some surgeries and wait till I was kind of processed and healed before they actually was um, able to visit. Yeah. But it was those little things that kind of eventually helped me come out of that dark place. I mean, it still took time. I would say it took. Even though I was in the hospital for nine months, I still think it took time me coming home, um, trying to reintegrate it back into society still, like not having people want to stare at my hand. Or it took me a, like, like I was uncomfortable like wearing shorts gotcha. um, because I didn't want people to see my, my leg and how um, just mangled it was. And, and it's not like I can walk around with a sign on my head that says injured in Iraq. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it took like mentally, it took me a long time to escape those insecurities and not feel like people were staring or feel like I was like uh, I want like the best I uh, like a freak uh, uh-huh. unfortunately um so so I actually ended up going to therapy once I got home um because I needed the help and I needed to kind of help I needed somebody to help me understand yeah. how to process this and how to move forward and eventually I did get the help I needed and I, I thank my wife for that because she knew something wasn't right mm-hmm. with me mentally um but after a while you know I found myself back in the gym and once I got 
back in the gym, I started back lifting. I started back trying to, you know, I, trying to maneuver life differently. And I was trying to build myself back up physically. And once I figured out how I could build myself back up, um, that started to help with the mental aspect too. Because it gave me more confidence and it gave me more um, ability to feel comfortable in life. Mm-hmm. So with all those things uh, happening, that it, it just kind of kept elevating and it kept elevating. And, and I, I got to a point in my life where I became more and more comfortable and more and more. I started having a more positive outlook on life because then I started telling myself I'm, I'm alive and I'm here for a purpose. Collier, a former All-American college athlete, made the cover of Men's Health magazine. What a sight to behold, as he is absolutely one of the fittest individuals you will see anywhere. And he inspires young people. Next up, Kahari Hicks. He's an assistant coach at Cleveland Heights High School here in Northeast Ohio. Yeah, it's the high school of the Kelsey brothers. You're right. He was the inspiration behind Build the Bridge, a nationally recognized movement that helps bridge the divide between kids who simply don't look like each other, come from various backgrounds. Hicks is mainly following in the footsteps of his late father, Bill, who was a freedom rider back in the civil rights movement. And this episode aired and we posted it on January the 30th. Here is Kahari Hicks. I came to Mac with the idea after I, after I thought about it, I said, Mac, this is what I want to do. And Mac said, you know, this will be a good idea because at the time it was very, very tense. And you know, you had people on, you know, far right and far left about George Floyd and no one could ever come to the middle, which is where we want to bring people. So I I taught the Mac and I didn't want to put pressure on coaches to, to, to do it. So they would, they would feel like, you know, Hey, I got to do it. So I won't look like I care. And and so, you know, you know, I I talked to Damian Creel over at Lorraine. He was in, then, you know, speaking with, when I put it out there, I, I called coach DeLuca. He was in immediately coach Alexander at Walsh, coach Fox at Nordonia, coach Laverty, coach Dodd, coach Duffy, Coach Martin at Cuyahoga Heights, you know, mm-hmm. Coach Ward at Columbia, they all flooded to this immediately. Coach Ginn was very supportive. He came to the um, Build the Bridge event at the Hall of Fame and spoke and just talked about some things. And so there are a lot of coaches that were really all on board with just trying to bring young people together mm-hmm. because ultimately, you know, and I think it was Nick Alexander who said this. He said, one day, what if my daughter wants to marry an African-American man? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why would I have a problem with that? And that was one of the most telling things that he that he said to me through this whole process. And Coach Laverty said the exact same thing because they, they, they recognize, you know, the fact that this is a very different society yeah. and people are coming into contact with, with all different races. And love is, you know, if you, you, you have to move past what someone looks like, whether it's a, a husband and a wife or just your teammates and just have a general love for people because as you know bad people come in all colors and all religions sure do and so i think that that's the important thing that we've had so many coaches that have been on board i can't even shout them all out because there's so many of them coach scott just got involved from um from chagrin falls coach toth over at bedford uh coach siuli over at uh at north royalton he's coming on board uh bay village wants to be involved so we have so many different uh coaches 
that recognize the value of just trying to get young people together because ultimately when you say the wrong things you can often often end up in human resources and have your job on the line for just saying things it doesn't matter whether you're white or you're black you can make ignorant statements regardless and you just don't want to end up in a human resource room or be labeled a certain way because you don't have any experience with other people like like i'm an orthodox muslim yep. very conservative muslim family my daughter wears a headscarf while she plays known as a hijab yes. and so a lot of the officials have no context they said you get to wear that headband when you play and so i've watched them try to give my daughter a technical foul i've watched them try to assess technicals to girls because they they got their brown skin mixed up with band-aids and so but when you don't have context then you these are the common things that you do and i don't and I, I think when you just get people together and you sit down as as dr king at the at the tablehood the table of brotherhood you'll you'll get people together and these these issues will be eradicated In late February, I introduced Dr. Richard Schlenk to the Tellage Talks audience. He's a neurosurgeon at the world-famous Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Schlenk is also an ultra-marathon runner and a race director, but his work as a luthier, a guitar maker, is very, very much unique. Self-taught, he makes these musical gems and then he gives them away. Here's Dr. Richard Schlank. It, it's also because my my job is so heavy, you know, meaning that it it there, you know, doesn't huge always, consequences. It, it doesn't always go well, and there are lots there's lots of pressure, and and uh, I need something, you know, kind of equally as um, as extreme almost to balance that aspect of my life. That's where ultra running came from, yeah. I believe. And, you know, and as I slowed down as an ultra runner, because I'm getting older, the guitar stuff is really kind of uh, not completely surplanted running, but it is, uh, it, now this is the big thing that I do outside of work. It's, it challenges you the most, right? No? And uh, what's different about this is that it is a solitary um, um, endeavor. Um, but there's also a lot of solace in that. And there's a, there's a lot of times that I'm thinking about my, you know, I spend probably 10 times thinking about my project more so than I actually doing, do it. So I'm always kind of trying to work out the next solution for the next project. And, and now I've gotten to the point where I could, I could tackle more than one project at the same time. So you're juggling a couple right now, like I said, you, you, over my, behind me or four piece five pieces of wood that will become guitars correct and over your shoulder is your first one is there you have a nickname for that baby no i don't (laughs) i don't have it it's just it's just the original and it's rough you know i think if any guitar player picked it up they would they would uh just sort of smirk and just ask for another guitar quickly but it's a handsome looking guitar and i learned a lot from it there's also what you can't see in this uh, uh uh you're not gonna be able to see in this podcast is there there's, there's also guitars that litter this shop that are dead guitars guitars <laughs> that i started that just didn't work out uh mistakes that i made and most of those were within the first year and a half to two years i i haven't put a guitar on the wall in a while you know uh you know what? I, call, I call it the guitar wall of shame so just to <laughs> remind me keep me humble it keeps you humble but so what's it going to take to put another one on the the wall first of all difficult to do because you're giving it away that's the whole essence of what you're doing you're giving these away or they're being auctioned off for charity a, a few of them have been, been auctioned but for the most part what i what i do is i just connect with uh with an interested 
uh, player. Okay. And who knows that, uh, you know, that, you know, especially early on that I'm, I'm, I'm new to this and, uh, you know, but that we're going to create a guitar for them, uh, you know, their dream guitar. And, uh, and in turn, I don't receive anything like, so they don't have to pay me anything for it. Uh, you know, no, nothing for the parts, nothing for anything, anything. And I just ask in return that when they receive the guitar, that, uh, they give something in, uh, that's commensurate with that to pay forward to the local Cleveland community. This past fall, here's an update for you. Dr. Schlake took on the Canal Corridor 100-mile ultramarathon race. He said he was inspired by some old guy who ran an ultramarathon in the spring. And he did it in 22 hours. 100 miles, 22 hours for Dr. Schlake. Way to go. And yes, indeed, the doc still has it. Let's talk about Natalie Herbick. On October the 16th, we aired the episode with my former colleague over at Fox 8 Television. She came on the pod to talk about her upfront message about breast cancer. She had a double mastectomy earlier this year, but her respect for her mother, well, folks, it was off the charts, is my good friend, Natalie Herbeck. For those who, who know of my story, I it, I lost my mom <clears throat> four years ago to ovarian cancer. And um, ovarian cancer, it, it can be a very difficult cancer, depending on the situation. And my mom's was. And I went through, she fought for a good three and a half years. I mean, I've never seen someone, I've never, that she will what she taught me in those last years of her life is more than she could ever imagine. Wow. And I, she gave me the greatest lessons. I, every time I go through anything, especially what I've just gone through myself, watching and thinking about what she went through and how incredibly strong she was and how difficult that was for her. I, I use that every day to give me strength. Yeah. And so when I got that word, I was really just trying to be proactive. I, no doctor in my life would have ever thought this was going to be the case at this point. They wanted me, you know, just to be safe because my mom had passive cancer to see if I would be high risk um, at developing breast cancer. Sure. And so I went right away. Did she also, because of her, I stay on top of everything. And because I feel like if there's things I can control, I better be controlling them. So I did that as a preventative measure. And I found out that, and I hope every woman asks their doctor this, I found out that because I have dense tissue, and a lot of women do, yeah. that I, because of the level of it, I was at high risk of developing it in my lifetime. And so it wasn't about my mom, they said, it was more about the density. And my insurance and most women's insurance will cover them to get an MRI as well as a mammogram. So I got an MRI and that's how I discovered that I had this. And from the moment I found out, I realized, I thought that I had a mission. I thought that I, God had a, uh, a plan for me and that it was to you know, bring happiness to people on a daily basis and just help the community out. But then I realized in that moment, nope, this, he gave me this in a way that I can now hopefully help others in a way that I didn't ever, I didn't think possible. And so that is why I felt it necessary to be very open and vulnerable about the situation. 
Yeah. And I think by you being vulnerable, you show your strength. And I think a lot of people um, that go through di very difficult situations and they're they're open about it. Um, sure, the love and support from viewers, friends like us uh, can mean, me. mean, mean mm -hmm. a bunch to you. But you get that support from people. There's thousands and thousands of people don't even have never met you, never seen you. But you're like family because we found that to be the case, not just here at Fox 8, but at many uh, media outlets. Uh, in the country so you kind of have that person sitting on one shoulder saying you, you know you've got this um but there there's been things written about you about you know the whole process about double mastectomy mm -hmm. uh, about reconstruction mm -hmm. um and it's kind of awkward for me to be asking this but i think i think it's important how do you how did you take yourself through that and and how are you doing with it right now you know i would I would say that I'm not the type of person that can always be very decisive. I, I question <laughs> things. I ask the people I love, what do you think I should do? I have never been more sure in my life than when I was diagnosed what I wanted to do. Gotcha. And I, and I say that knowing that every woman has to do what's right for them. My, ch my choice doesn't have to be someone else's choice, but okay. it was what I needed for myself to be, to feel like I've done everything I can 100%. to hopefully keep it from coming back. And so that's why after consulting with my doctor, consulting with my best friend who is an oncologist as well, I realized that with given my age, I was younger, I need, this is the route I wanted to go. And I was glad I did. And I, I put it in uh, the article that was in Cleveland Magazine. They found on the other side, when I did my double mastectomy, they found some cells that were technically considered precancerous. Gotcha. So I would have been going through this whole process again at some point in my life. So I'm glad I did it. It's not an easy process, um, but at the same time, and I know there can be complications. I was very blessed I had minor complications. With Mitch Hewitt is a two-time state title winning coach of the Chardon High School Hilltoppers football team. He played for Chardon and he also played for Bowling Green State University and head coach Urban Meyer, among others many of his influences but part of our chat was about reaching kids today and connecting in a social media fueled world here's mitch hewitt We're, we still have uh, an ability to be tough on kids but i think because there's a relationship with our kids there's a flexibility in that right like if mm -hmm. if kids don't know how much you love them then you can't be hard on them but if they know you care and you're not calling them out, you're you're calling them up. Like like like, like yeah. you're you're trying to get them to reach their full potential. And without people like that in your life, it's hard to do independently because we are naturally lazy human beings, and it's way easier to stay in shallow water than it is to swim out. Who are some of your uh, role models, as it were? Coaches, people yeah. in the neighborhood, that type of stuff. Yeah, I, I've had great coaches. I mean, my mom was a single mom, pretty tough lady, so she helped keep me on the straight and narrow. Uh, I had a grandpa and grandma who were very much in my life because my mom would work third shift and ten bar on the weekends. Coach Doyle was probably my first role model who at age 17, even though I was an idiot, said, you know, I want to get into coaching and teaching. And then throughout college. Is that you know, because of him, I assume? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Coach Doyle, and, and, and he still runs a leadership class for my team. So you talk about continuity. I have Tim Armelli, Hall of Fame coach, Bob Doyle, Hall of Fame coach, coming back on Wednesdays. Uh, speaking on leadership and accountability and commitment and all the things that I think are slipping away through society. Um, so, and then you get to college and um, I, I've been 
baptized by some of the best coaches, uh, not always easy. You know, I mean, there, there were, I, I, I tell this to anyone who will listen, is that like I called home several times and said, I can't do this, this is it. And um, had I not had people that kept me in the fire, I would have probably missed out on my greatest opportunities and really who I am today. So I, you know, that's when I go back to parents. Like, I can get a kid to play if I know the parents are involved. If okay. the parents are, no, he, he, can, he can go, he doesn't need to do it, then it's, it's a hard sell. Yeah, it's very difficult. You're kind of like trying to fight a fight with one arm tied behind your it's 100%. back. It's 100%. And, and you just can't. Uh, get enough traction if uh, the loving environment isn't there towards the young person yeah. that you're trying to uh, mold. Yeah, because, because at the end of the day, we all want the path of least resistance. I mean, until we figure it out, like, we yeah. all want to be comfortable. I mean, that's like... We want our hacks, right? That's exactly right. That's human nature. Uh, and it's even worse now that there was more polling kids. Like, like we didn't have a phone. We didn't have video games. You know, I mean, now there is so much vying for their attention that creates comfort. I had a student the other day tell me that TikTok should should either be banned or it should be over the age of drinking because he goes, I can spend five hours on that thing and barely blink. And, wow. it, and it's like, like that's it. I, I, I say it's the only accepted addiction that all of society has. Like you almost giggle about, oh, I spent seven hours on my phone yesterday. Like right. it's, it's, it's crazy and that's, that's their intent. They want our time. Yeah, as you just mentioned, that's their intent. That's what they want. They want they want you to want that dopamine rush that's exactly that you right. get when someone likes a post that you had. Yep. And I think people that's also true. steer their behaviors and their 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 posts on social media to get people to like it as opposed to putting out there what's real. It's it's, it's totally crazy. And, and I could and be guilty of that too. I, I, it's, to, be, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, we all are. I mean, like, like, believe me, it's when I preach to my students and my players, like I admit fault. And, and part of why I say it publicly to my players is that it holds me accountable. Like, like you're speaking it loud. Like, like you speak things into being. You speak things into existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think it's important to have a soundboard. Um, you know, if, you, if you're going to start a new activity for the month or a new goal for the month, make it public. Make it known because then there's a little bit more accountability that can help sort of see you through that goal. Babe Kwasniak is a high school hoops coach. He's won multiple state championships, and he is also the civilian aide to the Secretary of the Army. He was the youngest when appointed. Kwasniak spoke of his battles with depression and his faith, and also of a dark moment in his life when he says he tried to take his own life. And he spoke of 60% of service members who take their own life don't deploy. It is not just the soldiers who have those dark moments. Here's Babe Kwasniak. And by the way, as we play the interview, note this. It really did hit home for him. He lost two of his fellow soldiers, fellow friends to suicide. You just develop these bonds where, man, there's nothing worse than letting your buddy down. There, there's just nothing worse. Like you would, you would rather die than having let them down. And, and I'd be lying to you, Mr. T, if I like, because I, I don't save anybody. Only, only Jesus can do that. I, I feel like I've been able to help a lot, of, a lot of folks. But it's a lot like coaching. You know, you can win 20 games and it's a two you lose. And it's the fact that like those were two of the best friends I've. And I, you know, I told you before about, about about Jason. 
And, um, and I say this because I know he'll listen to this. I've often wondered, like, what it would have done to his life. And, you know, when you're in that spot, you, you don't you don't think like that, obviously. You know, we, you think oh, it's, it's selfish or it's, no, that person, they're sick. And they just want they just want the pain to end. And man, oh man, you know. And they teach you in training not to say that. You don't say you don't say, hey, hey, Jace, you know, hey, babe, don't do this because of what it's going to mean to me. But I do feel like for the for the for the veterans, it is different. Um, that that has, you know, that that has meant that has been successful for for me. You mentioned before how, you know, do you tell your story? No, I don't, because. You need to empathize and not sympathize, right? They know by the things I'm saying, they'll make the connection, right? Okay. You can't. They know, and sometimes the strongest thing you can do is. There's, so there's no need for you to preface your words to them that, hey, I know where you are because I because that's that should not be part of the equation. Anyone that it ever said that to me, surmised by that. Anyone that ever said that to me, I, I thought to myself, you have no idea where I am. You know, there's a song by the country song by Morgan Wall and says, they asked me where I'm from. I said someplace you've never been. When they're that place, man, I, I wouldn't do that. What I would what I would suggest to every single person listening to me right now is if you have somebody that you think's in that place, the best thing you can do is confront them about it, is say, hey, now the training teaches you to harm yourself, but I get right to it. You know, I, I confront the truth. Hey, hey, um, are you thinking about ending your life, John? And it does two things. Number one, it puts them on blast. Right. And my wife and my doctor were going to have me admitted, which I never knew about. And the second thing it does is it shows them someone cares, which the essence of leadership is soldiers don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. And that's just so important. My very best friend who had seven de- deployments after I got fired from VASJ, uh, my wife had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. He flew here because he, he was, you know, he was thought I would be all upset. Yeah, I want to look, look, you look up out and for me. And, and yep. plus my wife. That was the first time I told him. So that was 2020 when I got when I got let go. I think he was pretty amazed on how at peace I was with getting fired. And the reality is, man, I, I prayed and, and I, I couldn't. I mean, the fact that this is a place you won three state titles. Correct. Yeah. And this is a place that five you play, total. Yeah. Five total. And <laughs> yeah. then this is a place where you played high school basketball grew up yourself. With, yeah. Yeah. Grew yep. up with and, and my kids were my, my son was there as a sophomore. That's all he ever dreamed of was going there. I mean, I would never would have left on my own. Sure. No way. There's nothing that could have happened where I, I mean, I looked into some other jobs and hopefully Sean O'Toole was listening to this. He's the only one that wouldn't hire me at Gilmore. I want to get that on the record, John Tulich. <laughs> Sean O'Toole from Gilmore was the only one. He just didn't think I was a good enough coach. Oh, I can't wait till he listens to this. This is, <laughs> this is going to be great. you got but, an agenda. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be, this is so good. But um, yeah, and, and, and my buddy, he sat right across from me after I told him and he said, man, brother, I've never had a suicidal thought in my life. And you're talking about a guy who he lost a ton of soldiers, seven, seven combat tours. He goes, but man, I can't imagine my life without you. And we were both crying. You know, he, I mean, he's, wow. he's, I, I, every time I go to the Pentagon, he won the MacArthur award on leadership. I have to see his name on the wall. And that meant more to me. Right. And, and there's, it's one thing to say you're going to be there for somebody JT. And it's another thing just to be there. Sandy Alomar Jr. is arguably one of the most popular former Cleveland Indians of all time. He's currently on the staff of the Cleveland Guardians, 
And our talk took many turns. Hop along, gang, as we reminisce what it was like to be a kid in Puerto Rico with all these major league players coming in the winter and how it helped mold the future career of Sandy Alomar Jr. Did you have major league aspirations as a kid or you just said, I love this game of baseball and I'm just going to keep playing it, whether whether or not I get drafted or those types of things. We'll let it uh, nature take its course. The last part you say was <laughs> it. I, I was in love with the game, but it was not I wasn't thinking about am I going to be a baseball player because baseball was there in front of me all the time. Yeah. My brother was different. He was just all in like. Like, I was more worried about getting good grades and stuff like that. He was more worried about becoming a major league baseball player. So, like, okay. I, I I did love the game. I kind of left it for a little bit. I did other things because I want to enjoy my childhood. But at the end of the day, the, the passion that I, that we have as a family for the game kind of brought me back in. Uh, didn't know I was going to be a major league baseball player, but I felt like the opportunity was there. Yeah, and you it just took advantage of it because you have the skills and you got better and better as, as time went on. Yeah, I, I was a little bit of a late bloomer. Uh, play other sports? I play volleyball. I, I did taekwondo. I rode dirt bikes. I enjoyed my childhood. You know, I Cool. And, and I had to work, too, to, to buy my, my products. Like, uh, I delivered the papers. Uh, I used to uh, shine shoes, work in my dad gas station to, in order to buy my dirt bike. Oh, cool. So it was my dad did not say, you want a dirt bike, you got to get it yourself. So, <laughs> uh, But I used to get up early to uh, deliver the newspaper when people uh, used to have the paper, the newspaper get delivered to their homes. Yeah, those days uh, seem like they were years and years ago. <laughs> we're, we're of the same ilk because I was a paper boy <laughs> mm-hmm. myself. Did you ever get those days where you go, did I deliver to that house? I can't remember. I forgot hey, whether it, or not I gave them the I, paper. Hey, I, I, I tell you what, uh, <laughs> that... One time I was delivering, I used to get up, my dad used to get me up 5.30 in the morning because I had to be in school by 8. So I used to get up 5.30, it took me like a half an hour to get ready. I used to roll those paper and put them in a, remember those, those, those uh, the Coca-Cola, uh, those those loops, those plastic loops? Yeah, yeah I used to I, I used to put those newspaper in a loop and I have it back. And I used to go to his house all the time. There's a, there's a straight dog that used to chase me all the time. I used to panic all the time. So I used to go to, I had to start gaining speed now because, and I had to shoot the paper a couple of times. I overshoot because the dog was chasing me. But uh, at the end of the day, there was fun times, and uh, I ended up going back to baseball because you know the passion was calling. And I was a little bit of a late bloomer, but at the end of the day, I, I got it done. That's cool. I, I guess that was just uh, uh, preparing you for when you were crouched behind the plate and you had to uh, throw some guy out at second base. So I, I really was. Uh, my dad I was always preached yeah, you should be a catcher because you're like uh, you basically like a, a, a natural you have a natural ability to block balls for some reason as a kid I never was afraid of the ball. Oh wow! Uh, so one of one of the Christmas he got me. Uh, I, I remember I idolized Thurman Munson because he played with my dad with the Yankees, and I like his catching gear, orange and black. So for Christmas I ordered a catching gear that had the orange and black. My dad got it for me, and that was it. I was hooked to catching ever since. I was like seven, seven years old. And uh, I uh, I became a catcher since then, and uh, I, I love the position. And it really, really, if you if you play catching since you're in little leagues you're and you, you fight hard and you work hard, Mm-hmm. You can become a major league catcher. We'll get uh, we'll get to maybe how you work with uh, uh, you're working with the catcher for the Guardians right now, uh, who's 
got to get better at, at blocking mm. balls in the plate. But let's stay back where you're a young guy, you're getting, you know, you, you get signed, you become a major leaguer, you're minor league player of the year for a couple of years in a row. You get the shot to go to Cleveland with the Indians. Now, you w- Lofton would come later, but not mm-hmm. much later, but mm-hmm. it was basically you and Carlos that mm-hmm. were the early uh, parts, parts of the team, and then Charlie comes along as well. Yes, I... I was I was just uh, walking in the opportunity. I wasn't looking at what the standings. I I wanted to make a difference everywhere I go mm-hmm. or everywhere I went. I should say because the last two years, the last three years in uh, in the minor league system, we won two championships. So I had the kind of like the winning attitude already uh, coming from San Diego, uh, and uh, Carlos Barriga was the same. He had the passion for the game, and in reality, Carlos was one of the top prospects for the San Diego organization because he was a great hitter. Defensively, he was kind of iffy. That he didn't have a position third or second, but he kind of developed into a great second baseman afterwards. But his bat was special. Yeah, it so was. So coming with somebody that uh, that I was familiar with, coming with me over here, also Chris James came over, it made it a lot easier for me. Okay. Thanks so much to everyone who has done an interview with me this past year. I know it's an inconvenience to either do it in person and or do it via the Zoom, but I had some great conversations. And I'm warning you, we'll be back next week with another edition of more of the best of or the interviews I enjoyed the most in the year 2023. So we'll have another compilation next week for you and then back to regular episodes after that. Thanks very much for listening. Of course, if you like this pod, we ask you to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, uh, somehow support it in any way, shape, or form by saving an episode and or sharing it as well. I hope you have a great holiday. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on Tellage Talks.